0: This podcast is an initiative of Core2Ed and is supported by an independent educational grant from Ipsen. The views in this podcast are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' academic institution, employer, organization, or other group or individual. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the Core2Ed website.
1: Hello and welcome to this exciting podcast of PBC Highlights from the International Liver Congress 2022, just finishing in London, UK. My name is Gideon Hirschfeld. I am a hepatologist from the University of Toronto and I'm delighted to be joined here today by Anna Leo, a professor of hepatology from Milan. Anna and I are gonna have a conversation about some of the highlights that we took away from this Congress on primary biliary cholangitis. I hope we can have a fair, frank and open discussion. So Anna, let me start by asking you what kind of convention you had. And then you tell me a little bit about what you learnt about some of the first line treatments for PBC from some of the sessions at ILC.
0: Hi Gideon, it's really a pleasure being here. It has been a really exciting meeting. It's uh, the first meeting face-to-face we've had in uh, a long time. And it was really exciting following all the sessions. We did a lot of work on PBC during this meeting. Uh, for sure, the first line uh, was highlighted as also the acid. I think that's something nobody really doubts. Uh, the efficacy has been proven. We all use it. The only reminder was to use the correct dose, 13-15 milligrams per kilogram per day. I was actually surprised seeing a very nice study that the um, UK uh, PBC group uh, presented, it was real life experience with a really high number of patients in which uh, they show that uh, actually a very good percentage of patients are underdosed on first line, so that the, the dosage use is not always correct.
1: I agree. I mean I think one of the interesting things is when we educate about PBC, we've got to educate from the beginning, not just from the middle. And so from the beginning, it's a good diagnosis and it's using ursidioxycholic acid properly. And there's still work to be done. It's better than it was, but there's still work to be done. What did you think about when we should screen for failure to respond to ursidioxycholic acid? Do you think it's okay to wait 12 months, or do you think that really we should be um, accelerating that time point?
0: Well, I think we already have enough data to suggest that the sooner we start second line in non-responders or incomplete responders, the better. Like the large cohort study have identified that predictors at at baseline are reliable to identify those patients that don't respond. So it's not clinical practice yet. The guidelines still recommend to uh, assess response at 12 months, which is what most people do. But I think we need to to do more studies to validate this indication and see if we can start second lines earlier. So what do you think, Gideon, about the second lines and uh, the treatments that are available at the moment?
1: First of all, I agree that I think we would like to accelerate the time point where we consider second line treatment. I would just say um, in one of the sessions, we talked about whether there you know, there needs to always be a rush in PBC. So, you know, without doubt, I want all patients to get the best treatment. But I also want patients to be adherent, to understand their disease, to feel as if they understand the quality of life aspects of it. And so I'm a little bit nervous about a pure escalator approach to PBC. I want something in the middle where our colleagues around the world really identify um, insufficient response at the appropriate time. So, you know, as regards second and third line treatment, it's very, very exciting times. And it's very clear that we've agreed that we don't want our patients living with abnormal serum liver tests on ursidioctocholic acid or if intolerant to ursidioctocholic acid, because that clearly is associated with poor outcomes. And it's very exciting that we have licensed second line therapy and clinical trials of new agents, as well as off-label therapies. So we use licensed therapy and there was data at this conference looking at real world outcomes, looking at how to demonstrate whether a drug such as a colic acid does improve not only biochemistry, but also improves outcome. And that's relevant to other second and third line treatments because they're going to be developed in a very, very similar way. So you know, in our practice, what we're doing, of course, is we have a choice between a colic acid and sometimes off-label use of, of drugs. We're using licensed approaches first. We're looking at patients at 12 months of treatment on ursodeoxycholic acid. And we're looking at their symptom profile to decide, you know, how they will tolerate with a betacholic acid. But we're looking to the future as well, because we know that not everyone responds adequately to abetacholic acid. We know that betacholic acid does have a side effect profile, including pruritus, and we know that drugs that target the PPAR pathway, whether that's mesofibrate, fenofibrate, or new drugs in development, such as elafibranor fibrinol Celerdelpar, they have the opportunity to not only tackle disease, but also tackle symptoms. So we're identifying the high-risk patients using biochemistry. As we discussed, You know, maybe we're thinking about this at six months, not 12 months. And then we are adding in second-line treatment, Usually for us, it's a better colic acid. I'm not sure what, what you're doing. And then we are giving patients triple therapy.
0: Yeah, I guess we have a slightly different approach. So for sure, we use uh, the first approved uh, second line treatment. We probably personalized a little bit more treatment. And if the patient, for instance, is an non-responder and has pruritus, we go for fibrids first. But uh, it's still up to the clinician to decide which second-line treatment is better. Uh, however, I have to admit that the, um, the fibrates uh, are still uh, um, underused and that uh, still the guidelines recommend uh, in even in Europe uh, second-line treatment with uh, obeticolic acid. So it's still an open question there. I think we still need more, more data. Actually... The, the combination, second line, the, was uh, actually exciting also. It's a recent paper that was represented in some of the sessions in which combination of triple therapy actually has shown very, very good effects. And I think that's exciting too. So we, we can offer our patients that do not respond to second line an add-on therapy with fibrates or obeticolic dependent on, on what you have used before.
1: And an important point, I think, is that most patients living with PBC do not go to super-specialist PBC clinics. And that's the reason the guidelines are so important. And there's guidelines in Europe and the US, and they're, they're pretty well aligned. I mean, there, there's some differences about the emphasis on on off-label therapies. But the point I'm making is that with new licensed therapies coming online it's easier for the guidelines to be clearer and clearer for everybody so that it doesn't matter where you live with PBC you're going to get the same opportunity for personalized care and one of the challenges of personalized care is making sure that the person making those decisions in conjunction with the patient has sufficient experience and expertise and of course with off-label therapies people feel a little uneasy about using drugs off label, particularly when they worry about side effect profiles. And so I hope in the future, in the next years to come, when we have other therapies approved for PBC, that will then allow the guidelines to be clearer. And actually what that means is that there's a more uniform standard of care. And I think standards of care is something that you highlighted from the UK paper about the opportunity to actually measure what we're doing, not what we're talking about. And that's something that came up in the conference in a number of sessions is it's quite easy to talk about, you know, where we'd like to be in terms of treatment response, in terms of symptoms and, and studies that look at symptoms. But we also have to then re- translate that into what's actually happening in the community, which is actually where the majority of PBC is looked after. And in, in fact, I think wherever you live, it's the same around the world.
0: Yeah, it is. It's the same experience. I think we also need to remind that, uh, unfortunately, the second-line treatments that we have available at the moment cannot be used in advanced cirrhosis, and that's a limitation for our patients. And if the patient is not a good candidate for transplantation at the moment, they are without options. There's nothing else we can offer them.
1: Absolutely. And, And the second thing is, as a community of people and patients with PBC, we mustn't undervalue our disease. We mustn't take the approach that our disease should be treated only with cheap drugs. Drugs have cost and our patients are valuable and preventing liver transplantation and improving quality of life are valid targets and it's perfectly valid for those treatments to be state of the art. Um, It's not only diseases that you can cure that should have the latest therapies. But chronic diseases like PBC, which have significant impacts on quality of life, and as you said, quantity of life, are also valuable to the individuals living with it. And therefore, there's value to having therapeutic development for PBC and other cholestatic liver diseases.
0: Yeah, probably we should organize our care, the management of patients also with An early referral of most difficult cases to specialized centers for those cases that probably are at higher risk of complications that need to be enlisted for transplantation earlier. And I I know it's not always easy. It's not uh, applicable to all countries, but probably is the way to offer uh, our patients the best cure in giving everyone the same opportunity.
1: I agree. And look, what we're trying to do is get the patients to the right place at the right time. And, you know, there was discussion about side effects of treatment, side effects of UDCA, side effects of abetacholic acid, side effects of bezafibrate. We'll learn about the safety profile of of the the new drugs. And clearly what we therefore need is individuals looking after patients who've got the experience to use these drugs, because even drugs like ursodeoxycholic acid, I don't know what you think, even that has some side effect profile. It's a safe drug. But in fact, if you listen to patients, patients do tell you some of the things they don't like about Urso, just like they tell you the things they don't like about OCA and just like they tell you the things they don't like about Bezofibrate. And no doubt they'll tell us the things they don't like about other drugs. I mean, it, it's it's taking medicines, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's the same. And PBC is a disease in which you can take your time. Like with Urso, probably um, some patients uh, report some discomfort in terms of diarrhea, nausea. But I've learned that if uh, you stop treatment and then you uh, restart uh, with a slower approach, increasing the dose as tolerance allows, in the end, they end up tolerating the drug very well. And the same thing, I think we've learned a lot about management of pruritus with obeticolic acid. So there's still a lot that we can do and learn in management of uh, side effects for our patients.
1: I agree. And that's personalized care is about listening to the patient, listening to their symptoms. We, we learnt, talked a lot about symptoms, I think you'd agree, at ILC. And there were studies on symptoms. And there was uh, data on trials where symptoms have been evaluated. And those symptoms were not just pruritus, um, but they were fatigue. And so a lot of the discussion was just to listen more. And as you say, if you listen more, then you can adjust what you do. And you can use what we have at the moment better. But in the future, that helps us develop drugs which hopefully have less side effects, but also address other issues better, such as pruritus, such as fatigue. So I'm not sure what you took away from the conference, but I certainly took away that we need to look at the whole problem with PBC, not just alkaline phosphatase, and look at pruritus, look at fatigue, and actually ask clinical trials to look at those as well.
0: Yeah, I agree absolutely with you, Gideon. We focus a lot on... uh... The technicalities of the disease, alkaline phosphatase, the ultrasound, the signs of uh, portal hypertension, which, of course, it's, uh, it's very, very important as doctors. But our patients care more about symptoms because it's what impacts their daily life. So probably, as we said during the the meeting, we need to find ourselves somewhere in between and uh, do manage, of course, the biochemistry and the, the disease, but also treat symptoms. And I was excited to see data on clinical trials addressing pruritus, addressing fatigue. We will see a lot in the future, and I think it will be a very good option for our patients. So this was very, very interesting.
1: I agree. I mean, there's data. The ILC had a lot of studies looking at, you know, ASBT inhibition and in colostatic pruritus, Children, adults. There was discussion about PPARs, you know, in development and already used and, and pruritus. And then there's this uh, approach to inhibiting uh, NOX inhibition. And there was a secondary analysis, as you point out, of looking at subdomains of the PVC forty and looking at the impact of a new therapy um, on fatigue in, in clinical trials. So, you know, I think the fact that they're being discussed at ILC demonstrate the recognition of the importance. And of course, some of these therapies which are going to come are going to change both... As you say, the mechanics of the disease, the the codostatic injury is elevated by alkaline phosphatase, which is our surrogate endpoint for treatment need and treatment efficacy, but also improve paritis, for example. And then maybe drugs that improve paritis will also improve other quality of life generally. I mean, I think the big question is whether you can pick that up in six to 12 to 18 months of clinical trial, and maybe you have to wait longer. And that data really will come out in evolution i mean the evolution of treatment of pbc is we do treat earlier and when we treat earlier we get better outcomes and when we get better outcomes we have patients with better quality of life as well as better biochemistry so i think also we should caution people that you can't necessarily expect in all clinical trials to hit on everything in a short relatively short duration because i think you said it yourself Anna. this is a lifelong disease over decades and decades and a clinical trial is a, is a mere snapshot of 12 months of, of a patient's experience of living with the disease. And sometimes, you know, as we've seen with ursodeoxicolic acid, it takes decades to get to understand all of the ups and downs of therapies. And we're, we're sort of starting to see that with a colic acid, which has been on the market now for six years. And now we're getting data on outcomes and comparative ways of looking at outcomes. But it takes time, doesn't it? We're a rare disease. And, you know, it doesn't all just happen in two years and there's big studies. But I, I I do think that the conference was particularly exciting about that point perspective and really highlighted where things may go in, in, in the future and also set quite high expectations for ourselves as treating clinicians and for our patients.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. As you mentioned, it was also very nice seeing the, the comparison, the study of patients treated with obeticolic acid uh, compared with reference uh, cohort of untreated patients that do not respond to Urso. That gives a lot of hope. It gives a lot of hope to our patients because these treatments work and there are more options for them. And if we ad- identify them early, as you said, we can offer them different therapeutical options in order to avoid complications. So I think uh, really the future for PBC is bright. There are a lot of possibilities for our patients, both in the treatment of the disease, in management of the complications and management of the symptoms. I'm sure we will see in the near future a management of the disease that offers our patients a broad line of opportunities and treatments. So I don't know what you think, Gideon, but I think this has been a lot of fun. We have actually enjoyed a lot uh, the meeting uh, and uh, we have had a lot of fruitful discussions and uh, we've learned a lot of, about the possibilities that our patients can have and uh, I can't wait to see the next uh, future, what it offers and the possibilities that we will have.
1: I agree and we have the next in-person meeting at ASLD and then there'll be another in-person at Easel. and we've learned that you can use both in-person meetings, Zoom meetings, podcasts, Twitter, all of these things, and collectively all of those things are being positive and and our little disease, our rare disease can have a a light shone on it and we can see that things will be better for our patients in the future with a lot of effort from everyone, patients first and foremost.
0: Goodbye then, Uh, I hope to see you soon and we will be chatting about this more. This podcast was brought to you by Core2Ed Independent Medical Education. Please visit coretoed.com for more information.